At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. I recently moderated a panel at the St. Petersburg Conference on World Affairs on the international dining scene in the Tampa Bay area. It was a great conversation touching on everything from exciting new chefs to classic cuisine that's losing ground with millennials. Thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome everybody. Thanks for being here. I'm Robin Sessingham, and I host the show Florida Matters on WUSF Public Media. So I want to introduce the panel. This is an exciting time for uh, eating out in Tampa Bay area. It's becoming a more and more important topic. And on this panel, we're going to talk about international cuisine. We have Laura Riley. Laura Riley is the Tampa Bay Times restaurant critic and a former critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and the Baltimore Sun. She's cooked professionally and is a graduate of the California Culinary Academy. In 2017, she was a Pulitzer and a James Beard finalist and won the Paul Hansel Award for Distinguished Achievement in Florida Journalism. And sadly for us, <laughs> Laura has just accepted a position at the Washington Post, and she's going to be covering the business of food for them starting soon. So welcome. Thanks for having me today. Emmanuel Rue. Um, Emmanuel Rue was born and raised on a farm in Tunisia. He studied hotel management in Switzerland and served in the French Navy before moving to the United States in 1975, where he became general manager of the Lotos Club. Is that how you pronounce it? Lotos Club, which was a private literary club in Manhattan. He later founded a specialty pasta company in Savannah, Georgia, before moving to Florida. And since 1993, Emmanuel has owned several restaurants in St. Petersburg. Rue now owns Gatto au Chocolat, a well-known flourless chocolate cake bakery. For the last 10 years, he's developed an interest in urban agriculture and is running 15th Street Agrihood, an intensive organic educational farm in downtown St. Pete. Welcome, Emmanuel. And Janet Keeler, I know, but I don't have something written out in front of me and I don't want to get it wrong. So do you, can you just introduce yourself, Janet? Sure. I'm, am, I, am I on here? Yeah. I'm pinch hitting today and I'm thankful that I washed my hair and brushed my teeth. <laughs> so anyway, um, my name is Janet Keeler. I'm a professor of uh, journalism here at USF St. Pete. I'm the founder and uh, coordinator of the Graduate Food Writing and Photography Certificate Program. But before I came to USF St. Pete, I worked at the uh, Tampa Bay Times for 22 years, the last 15 as the food editor there, and had many years lucky enough to be Laura's editor mm -hmm. at the Times. So. Welcome, Janet, and thank Thanks. you so much for doing this. You are a sport. So it's said that traveling makes us broader-minded. And I'm wondering about trying the food and drink of other countries. I mean, does that change us in any way? Emmanuel, what do you think? Well, I think that uh, food is a very important part of uh, culture. And uh, we expand our horizons when uh, we try new flavors 
and also new methods of uh, cooking. So it just enriches our lives. Janet. Um, yeah, I definitely think that travel, you know, many of us travel to, part of it, a huge part of it is trying the food. Um, one of the things I do here at USF St. Pete is I lead a study abroad uh, to France and Germany. Uh, we'll go again this June where we study travel writing and, and food writing and kind of mesh them together. And it's amazing to take students that are haven't really experienced the world so much and to see what they're, what they're eating. One year we took a student who, when I got there, had told me she'd never had soup. She'd never had... Soup? Yeah. She'd never had cheese that wasn't a cheese stick, fried cheese stick. She'd never, you know, had a, lo a burrito. It was, like, amazing. But we, um, we got her to try raw oysters and uh, all kinds of different things. She was game to do everything, and now she wants to, you know, write about food, and now she'll eat everything. So that was an expansive thing for her that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if she had been traveling. What do you think, Laura? Well, I think that, that part of the reason I write about food is that I'm just super nosy, and it's a, it's a way to get into people's um, homes, into their habits, into the things that are, are hugely important to them. If you think about all the things that um, food accompanies in human endeavor, I mean, try dating without food, try mourning without food. Any holiday has enormous and elaborate um, food rituals associated with it. Um, and they're different in every culture. And I think that, that how we eat and what we eat in what order says a lot about our values, our history, our, our, our culture. Um, and I, I think that it's, you know, I think Janet and I probably both agree that it's, um, there's no story that can't be told through food. What's the best example in the Tampa Bay area and St. Petersburg, do you think? What's the best international uh, dining right now? Well, I, th I think before I want to answer that, I want to say, if we think about um, how far we've come in the Tampa Bay area in the past 10 or 15 years, 15 years ago, this area was a proving ground for chain concepts. We had just the right demographics of slightly gastronomically timid older white people that, you know, it, we were like, if it plays in Peoria, that we were Peoria. Yeah. Um, and I think it's remarkable how much that's not the case now, how demographically we've changed, how much we've broadened. I mean, we had, until, you know, eight or nine years ago, there were whole continents that didn't have any culinary representation here. Um, there was no African cuisine here until seven or eight years ago. And I think that we've seen just an explosion of um, breadth in terms of cuisine. You know, you go down to Ar Armenia now and it's restaurant row of, of affordable, you know, Southeast Asian, uh, Latin American, South American cuisines. I think that there are, are pockets all around the Tampa Bay area, but even just downtown St. Pete now, there are probably 25, 30 different cuisines represented one way or another. I mean, not always authentically or the way you'd, you'd find it in the, the home, home country, but um, it's been a dramatic ch shift, I think, in, in just the past half dozen years. Yeah, and you say that other states, other um, newspapers, they're noticing the change. Oh, yeah, we've been the kind of media darling this past year, and Forbes and Food and Wine and, you know, any number of publications have, have looked to us as this emerging market. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. So but you're, you're, you're following that. You're saying, wow, we're getting to be more well-known mm -hmm. as a food place. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a change. What, what do you think, Janet? Why, why are things changing? 
Well, I wanted just to add one thing to Laura's, uh, Laura's comment about how we were a place where a lot of chains, a testing ground for chains. A part of that was a lot of people that got in on the ground floor of Hooters and Outback made a lot of money. And they retired, and they said, "I'm going to go and start something else." So, don't you think some of those chains came from came from that? Yeah, actually, we got Bloomin' Brands and Darden, and yeah. a lot of the yeah. big food companies right. either all, started here or or had spinoffs from here. Right, and they were already here, so that was part of that too, part of that explosion of the chain testing here. Okay, Ron, what was the question? Well, I mean, and and also on that, people like chains. I mean, a lot of people like sure. chains because they like to know exactly what they're going to get. And I know, especially in smaller towns, that does make it harder for independent smaller restaurants to, to make a go of it, um, competing against those bigger things. So why do you think, that's been very entrenched, so why do you think things have changed in the last few years? Why have so many restaurants been able to uh, make a go of it? Well, I think, um, shout out to the millennials, who, who want to try new things. And that's, that's changed a lot of the way we eat and what's, and what's going on out there. If you notice, uh, restaurants are uh, louder. They're more like parties. Uh, there's a lot of hard surfaces in there that don't absorb sound. And that's a, that's, that's a fun time for young people. And so that's, that's changed a lot of things. But they're looking, I think, for, for stories. And the story of Outback, the story of Applebee's, the story of Chili's, not that interesting. No. Sorry. Uh, you know, to someone who's looking for a story, and they, they kind of gravitate to stories. So these, these uh, smaller independent restaurants, they have stories to them. The chef has a story. They read about his story or her story. And so that's, that's of interest to them. And I think that's helped, helped the growth of, of independent restaurants. So millennials and also just um, the population growth. There's so many more people moving here, the population density yeah. has increased so much, yeah. and then you've got people to go out to eat. When I moved to St. Petersburg in 1992, there was not a restaurant on Beach Drive. Think about that. There was not a restaurant on Beach Drive. And, and I moved here from Northern California, and the first, I don't know, five, six years, I thought, what have I done? <laughs> uh, there wasn't much downtown. There was a couple of places, and so the explosion of everything downtown is amazing to me. It's amazing, and it's such a beautiful spot, so it makes sense, right? The waterfront and everything, it's a beautiful place. So, Emmanuel, you've owned restaurants since 1993 in this area. What's, what have you seen that's changed? Oh, <clears throat> I remember uh, one day at Redwoods, uh, we had a couple that came, and uh, they wanted real lettuce. And what they meant by that was iceberg. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they say, that those are weeds. And, well, they're pretty close. <laughs> but uh, that was uh, very revealing. I think that uh, there has been a tremendous change uh, in the demographics in uh, St. Petersburg. And a lot of people came here uh, not wanting to fulfill. Uh, dining was, when I came, fulfilling a physiological need mm -hmm. uh, and it has turned to be a different experience. I remember a few weeks ago I was uh, running some errands and I was going to uh, Largo and I said where am I going to have lunch? I had the choice. Uh, the three places that came to mind was a Filipino restaurant, a dim sum, and a Mexican restaurant that is in a, gas, in a former gas station. <laughs> so this was absolutely inconceivable 
1993 when I, uh, when I came where hummus was, you know, a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so our palate is changing and people are becoming, thanks to millennials or just some of us older people who are <laughs> growing, maybe, um, our palate's becoming a little more adventurous. We're willing to try new things. But I think there's also, uh, um, the chefs also probably have to move towards our palate as well, in a way. And I'm wondering how they do that. Did you ever find that you had to Americanize your recipes or your menu? We really tried not to, uh, because I don't know how to Americanize uh, something. <laughs> um, and I think that it is a disservice uh, to do it. Uh, you know, you just throw something on the wall and see what sticks. So you grew up in Tunisia. On a farm. Between, between Tunisia and France. Yeah, yes. back and forth. Your, your parents were French expatriates. That's correct, yes. And you grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. Did your parents cook? Se several farms. Were they good cooks? Oh, wonderful. Yeah? But that was, uh, for example, we lived, uh, our farm was uh, uh, 20 miles outside of Tunis, and every weekend the, uh, the farm, you know, we had a lot of friends coming, and a traditional, normally when everybody left, they would pull in front of uh, the kitchen and our cook and our gardener would put a basket of fresh vegetables in every car that was leaving. You know, so sharing food was really part of life. And I think this is what I enjoy now doing is that I love when people come to, uh, the agrihood and uh, that we share things that we have grown from seeds. And this is the experience. And I think that this is the next step uh, where it, people want to know where the food comes from. And this is the local food movement that uh, Laura has so much spoke, uh, spoke about and wrote about. Uh, the chefs want to put a face, want to humanize uh, food. And I think that that is, after the ethnic uh, movement, that is the next thing. I wanted to get back a little bit towards this, not Americanization maybe of, of international food, but putting a Florida spin on it. Um, there was something on, Noel Cruz isn't, couldn't be here, but there was something on his menu at Ichikoro that says Tampa style Cuba Ono. Oh um, and I, do you know what he meant by Tampa style? Well, actually, so, so Noel is an interesting guy. So he grew up in Clearwater and went to the Culinary Institute of America and spent a bunch of years cooking in New York and always wanted to come back here and do something. And he thought he'd bring ramen to, to the Tampa Bay area, which is something that we didn't have much of. Um, but he wanted to do it Tampa style. And by that, he meant incorporating some Tampa or you know some Florida ingredients offering um, brothless ramen, which is a pretty unusual thing, and a little spicier. So there's a little Florida citrus, there's some, some kind of, a little more heat to some of what he's doing. So I actually got to go to New York when he was um, incubating at this, at this Sun Ramen place in New York. He was trying out the recipes that he would eventually bring here. And I got to go and, and test it out in New York. And I actually got to stand where like, I don't know, you know, some, some I think it was a, 
who was married to Brad Pitt and... and uh, uh, who was Gwyneth Paltrow? Gwyneth Paltrow. I stood where she stood in her ramen spot, I guess. Um, but so he, so he really did kind of bring a new, a new cuisine here. He's also started a, a Filipino uh, stall at uh, Armature Works, another cuisine that has been fairly underrepresented here. But he tried, so the Cubano in particular is a, is a bao, like a pillowy bao bun. Um, with kind of the Cuban sandwich uh, innards. Uh, just, it's a great, a great fun, you know, kind of east-west uh, collaboration. Um, but can I, can I just speak to what Janet was saying about um, millennials before? I think that that's a, a really true thing, that, that millennials have contributed a lot. They, a lot of them went away, lived here, went away to college, said, I'm never moving back to the Tampa Bay area, and then they did. And, and part of why they did that is that there's still affordable real estate here. There's still cheap money to be borrowed often from mom and dad to start a kind of an entrepreneurial business. There's been a lot of um, kind of plucky DIY um, entrepreneurialism amongst millennials. And I attribute some of that, a subset of that, um, to the rise of craft beer. I think craft beer has been enormously important in the changing our food scene here. And I attribute some of that directly to, um, you know, Joey Redner. Like, I think that, and maybe even to his father, I think, you know, but Joey Redner at, at Cigar City um, brought craft beer to the Tampa Bay area. And, and more than that, he had this kind of spirit of cooperation and, and co-opetition. So a lot of other brewers after him got their start in using his equipment. He allowed a lot of other brewers to kind of experiment and, and then kind of go out on their own. So he kind of was responsible for the, the, the explosion of craft beer here, which in turn brought a lot of millennial attention. And a, a lot of, I mean, food and, food and beer go hand in hand, and which, which is the chicken, which is the egg, is a little, you know, it can go either way. But I think um, craft beer and the rise of craft beer turned a lot of people's attention to food. So next time you're at a good restaurant, you can thank Joey Redner. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting, though, is that a lot of times at, those, at, at a craft beer place, they don't have a license to sell food or they don't have a kitchen. So what do they do? I, places I've been have food trucks parked outside or something like that. So they or have you can to... order from down the block and they'll deliver. Uh-huh. Okay. So does that, does that help? With the food part of things, are people looking at foods that go with those? I think so. I think if you look at Seminole Heights, there are tons of places that kind of work collaboratively. You know, a bar, a bar, and a couple nearby restaurants, and you kind of, you know, mm. there, there, it's a, there's a synergy that that I think is, is you see that in a lot of urban places. But what you're saying is the, just the greater uh, creative push for new foods, different kinds of foods, really came from this burgeoning craft beer. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really interesting. You also said of Jeannie Parola, is that how you pronounce her name? Mm -hmm. Jeannie Parola of Edison, Laura, you said she's one of the area's most celebrated chefs, pushing the envelope with her own globe-trotting, but still somehow uniquely Floridian culinary take. Can you expand on that? Globe-trotting, but Floridian. So her new place at Sparkman Wharf called Swigamajig, um, is really an homage to an old dive bar fish shack on Anna Maria Island years ago where she grew up. Um, so she, she incorporates a lot of Florida ingredients, you know, snapper grouper, those kinds of things, you know, local clams, um, Florida shrimp, uh, with, with a lot of kind of Floribian, Caribbean um, flavorings. So I think she has a, a almost like a... You know, there was that whole group of what were they called? The mango, the mango gang, right? Yeah. The the kind of early Florida, and yeah. And I mean, 
Yeah, it was, a, it was a group of Miami chefs who, who maybe in the late 80s, early 90s, started cooking in a style that seemed fairly uniquely Floridian. Um, and just in terms of, of, you know, tropical fruit and citrus and, and some of the kind of indigenous foods that we have here um, in combinations that hadn't really been seen elsewhere. And I think that, that Jeannie does a lot of that. Are you seeing a lot of Florida food being used, Emmanuel? I read somewhere that 80% of our food in Florida is brought in from out of state. So I'm wondering how much we really do make use of our own food, uh, produce, seafood. I think it varies according to the season. You know, we're going into uh, a strawberry uh, time and uh, there is times where you get romaine from Canada, but there is uh, other times where you get romaine from uh, California and there is a lot of romaine grown in uh, Florida so it, it changes uh, depending on the time of the year because most of the chain restaurants and a lot of restaurants want to have the same thing available all the time uh, because they have it on their menu they don't want to change the they don't want to change the menu I think that there are still things that are undiscovered uh, and that are not used. Uh, I experimented with uh, sea grapes, for example. Uh, Those sea... pits are so big, though. There's yes, hardly any fruit uh, on that. Yes, but I think that uh, it's only a matter of time before a bartender makes a cocktail <laughs> with uh, sea grapes that would be unique to the area. Nobody has done it yet. I've made some uh, grape, um, I've played with it to try it. So there are some resources that are available. Uh, there is also, at this time of year, we can grow a lot of things that are grown uh, in the summer in other parts uh, of the US and in other parts of the world. So uh, we are experimenting. I planted some um, uh, cress. Uh, we'll see if any if there are any takers for it. So uh, there is all there is still a lot of ways to um, to try new things, uh, and whether they are specifically indigenous, uh, you know, cabbage palm could be another thing. Now, you know, it might change the landscape, but uh, if too many people like it, but it's something that could be that was eaten in. Uh, uh, in the past. In the early days. Yeah. So, Janet, do you think there's any international uh, cuisines that just do not have an audience in Tampa Bay? I like your take on that too, Laura, that just are too far out there for, for us. Um, well, can I just back up and just say, comment one thing about what Emmanuel was Please. saying? Just to give a shout out to Shannon O'Malley at Brick Street Farms, and she's got uh, over near Three Daughters Brewing, she has, <clears throat> I think, the second largest container gardening farm in the United States. So she's got four big shipping containers, and she's growing all kinds of uh, greens and, and beautiful things, and she's supplying some of the, the bigger hotels and restaurants. So she's, she's uh, attacking it from a different way. It's definitely a business. Uh, it's not... Um, 
uh, it's not a, a place where she's, you know, teaching uh, children how to farm or anything like that. So it's kind of a different look. And she's, she's somebody who cashed out of the, of, the, of the big corporate world and said, I'm going to do this. And she's had some pretty, pretty big success. It's an interesting, it's an interesting venture. So uh, do I think there's any international foods that don't have an audience or don't have restaurants to go with don't, them? Wouldn't really have an audience here or have, have tried and failed do you know of any? I, I don't, and I, I at this at this stage in the game, and Laura would have a better handle on that. Mm -hmm. But at this stage in the game, I just figure anything's game. People are willing to try anything. You know, there's so much travel around the world. There's uh, so much interest. You know, we're so interested in food. I mean, look at you know the the Food Network, the way it's expanded, and what we know about food. We know a lot about food. We may not know how to cook, but we do know a lot about food, <laughs> right? We know all these. Terms, you know, chiffonade and all these kinds of things. We can throw them around. We don't do them, but we do. We do know about them. Um, I think people are sort of interested in everything. And this idea of, I mean, it's a to me a very American thing to have all this fusion stuff. Like Laura was talking about what Jeannie Parola is doing, and a lot of other people are doing. They're putting putting different cuisines together. So I'm I'm I think anything's probably fair game at this point. I don't know. Laura might have another take on that. So I have my wish list, you know, of cuisines that I'd love to see here. But first of all, I'd like to say um, it's been so cool to see things like Korean food be embraced. I think that Americans are have been very slow to realize the allures or the, the loveliness of bitter and fermented flavors. Um, we've been kind of, I mean, the idea of kimchi five years ago was... It was, a, it was a, a stretch for a lot of people, and I think that we've seen a real pivot um, in terms of our embrace of, of fermented flavors as, an, as a contrast to you know, salty, sweet, um, et cetera. Um, so that's been kind of nice to see a whole bunch of successful Korean restaurants. I still think there are swaths of Southeast Asia that we really have underrepresented. I mean, Singaporean cuisine is amazing, and you see little pockets of it. Northern California has a has a big kind of community, and I, you know, I think that we there are some cuisines we see a lot of, like Thai, and that's partly because the Thai government historically has been a huge promoter of its cuisine to the rest of the world. Whereas you don't see Laotian or you know Cambodian cuisine nearly as much, even though they're geographically similar and, and you know share a lot of commonalities, um, they're not cuisines that have been exported uh, as vigorously as as Thai cuisine, say. Um, so there's some there are some interesting reasons for for some of that. And, and still, I mean, Africa is an enormous continent with a lot of uh, breadth and depth in terms of um, ingredient use and you know kind of. I think there's a lot of reason to think that there there could be um, a surge in interest, partly because it's a little more veggie focused, with meat as a as a kind of an accent rather than a center of the plate. And I think that's something we're seeing a ton more of, just day to day in, in restaurants. I think that some of the most popular cookbooks of the past couple of years have been cookbooks um, that kind of explode that three quadrant plate with the, the protein, the starch and the, and the veg, you know, and that it's a more integrated approach. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of restaurants too. You mentioned access to ingredients. And I was thinking if that was one reason why maybe we didn't see some kinds of cuisines, um, if they rely a lot on uh, sea urchins or some kind of ingredient that we could find, but it's harder to find. Or, um, I mean, is there that? I was if Noel had been here. <laughs> I was going to ask him about that with Japanese food. I mean, because I'm sure there's ingredients that they use a lot in Japan that we just don't have 
easy access I think at to. this point you can get anything anywhere. Whether we should is another question that deserves a lot of thought and, and conversation. Um, I think that if you, if you go to Noble Rice in, in Tampa, Eric Frolic over there is sourcing all of his, his fish and, and sea urchins and you know, whatever from Japan and you know, very meticulously sourced. So he is, you know, brings stuff in through from Tokyo three, four times a week. Um, so it's possible, I think, you know, because of the, the magic of FedEx and, and, you know, all the ways that we get our food now, you can get things, anything, yeah. anytime, um, whether we should. I mean, it used to be that everyone lived farm to table, everyone lived seasonally, you know, that's, that's because there wasn't an alternative to that. And now it's, we can have what we want it. What, what we want when we want it all the time. Um, and there, there are some, some problems with that, that uh, model, definitely. Are there any international cuisines that have just oversaturated the market that mm. uh, Italian, like why, why is Italian so <laughs> ubiquitous rather than Scandinavian? Well, I think it's cheaper to make, for one thing. I mean, pasta is a, is a very affordable thing to make. Um, and I think that Americans embraced it pretty fast and furiously. I think that uh, there's a lot of mediocre sushi in this yeah. market, and you know, I'm hoping that maybe that'll, that'll scale back at some point. Hmm. It's interesting that talking about, though, what you can, what you can mail order now. You know, even as a, even as a home cook, I was in um, Israel in, in the fall, and I've uh, uh, sort of gotten addicted to making, making a hummus at home, but I wasn't happy with the, with the tahini I was getting at the store, so I had been, like, mail ordering all kinds of tahini from everywhere to do all these, you know, tests. Which is the better hummus? My family's like, what? More hummus this weekend, and it, it, now they can't tell which takes different. But you know, it's so fun to be able to get your hands on stuff that you just can't get in the grocery store. And you know, with Amazon Prime or whatever, it's, it's here in 25 minutes. So you know. <laughs> Any thoughts, Emmanuel, about uh, certain kinds of international cuisine that are on the rise or on the wane? What are we going to see? I definitely think that French is uh, on the wane. Really? <laughs> Sadly. <clears throat> uh, because uh, the idea of a formal French meal is something that millennials are not interested in anymore, or they may be, but on a special occasion. Uh, the idea of uh, three or four or five courses is gone. Now people want to have a beer from a particular brewery, as we were talking before, and uh, uh, you know, a Cuban sandwich from uh, down the street. And uh, the person next to you, uh, next will be ordering something dim sum or, you know, some Korean barbecue. Uh, so it is much more informal, and French cooking and French mm. meals are very are very formal. Uh, I think that people want now an experience, whatever form it takes, and everybody has a different perspective. And having people coming from many different uh, parts of the country, parts of the world, uh, you have that stew that is uh, taking place here that is uh, very interesting and exciting, but it is uh, uh, changing the way we eat and uh, uh, how we eat all as well. 
Are you finding you're able to get the kind of food that you remember growing up with? Are you able to find the cuisine that, that you want? The food that I ate <clears throat> was to go in the garden, pick up what you wanted, and uh, you had a chicken that had been uh, uh, killed a couple days before, and you know, that was the, we ate every, basically everything that we grew, and uh, whether we were living in, uh, uh, in France or in, uh, in Tunisia, we had access to that, and the wheat, the, the bread that we ate was baked and ground on site as well. Yeah. Uh, the milk, the yogurt, uh, was coming from the cows that we were raising. And what I'm trying to do now is to illustrate the difference between uh, an organic carrot that comes from Mexico or California and an organic carrot that is just pulled out of the ground. And there is a tremendous difference. But in order to do that, you have to be able, you have to have access to a yeah. garden. Um, so I think that is going to be, that is what I see as the future, uh, an evolution that goes beyond the ethnic uh, part. You know, I'm wondering if we have such a variety, Janet, of food here now. Um, are we becoming more internationalized than international, uh, than other countries are? And I'm just going to admit something and make myself sound a little silly, but so I was staying with friends in Italy, um, probably longer than my family should have been, and they were cooking for us, and I just every lunch was Italian food and dinner was Italian food and the next day was Italian food and dinner was Italian food. And we're not used to that. So much of one kind of thing, you know, we're used to having Mexican one night and Italian the next night. And then, you know, I don't know, just bake a chicken or something. But I found, wow, when you live in Italy, you really just eat Italian food all the time. <laughs> and it's, I think it is true everywhere you go in the, in the world. And it's, that international uh, choice is really purely American. Mm -hmm. Because even in France, uh, yes, you can have sushi, you can have uh, Chinese, whatever, but 90% of the time, people eat French food. <laughs> yeah, so, because it is so, so much part of the culture, so, and you're happy with your culture, why do you want to uh, go somewhere else? But don't you think that something that is, is, has made this country what it is is a, is a uh, seeking novelty? Right. You know, I think that that's something that is a uniquely American kind of um, trait, and it certainly extends to what we eat and how we eat. I think that there's always this kind of moving forward, what's the next newest thing? I think, you know, at this point, when you talk to your friends, there's a lot of like, where have you eaten? What's the, you know, kind of what's the next exciting thing? And it's almost like birders collect, you know, with their life list. I think that that's a part of, of the culture that we have is this quest or this lust for, for the next thing. But I think that also there is a danger with that when you experiment for the experimentation, experience sake. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when my father came uh, to the US in uh, the 60s, uh, he came back and he was in Chicago and he ended up with 
a dish with whipped cream and there was an anchovy on top of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I remember some very questionable uh, uh, dishes that were in uh, trendy restaurants in Tampa in the uh, late 80s. Things that, you know, didn't make any sense to me and it was experiment, it was just wild experimentation. Mm -hmm. Well, it has a value, but will it survive the test of time and become a classic? No. Things are classic for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> right. So is there a kind of American cuisine besides just seeking, seeking the novelty? Do we have an, do we have an American cuisine? I don't think so. I think that maybe if you'd asked me that question in 1989, I would have pointed to Northern California and what was going on in San Francisco and said, here it is. Um, I think that we were also the center of the kind of molecular gastronomy movement um, in Chicago. And that's kind of been debunked or, or people, people have fallen out of love with that. So I think that there have been moments where we have a kind of cohesive idea of what this is what the future of gastronomy in this country looks like. Um, but I would say right at this moment, it's very fractured. It's a lot of different things happening concurrently. Um, just the incorporation of, of international ingredients um, across the board, I think, means that it's, there's a, always this kind of cacophony of, of different things going on simultaneously. So I don't think so. Uh, Janet, what do you think? Uh, you know, I think at one time I might have I might have said uh, southern cuisine. I th I would say southern. But if you start comfort food, yeah. But if you start deconstructing that, a lot of that is from other places. So much of our cuisine has is has come from immigrants. You know, watermelon Africa. comes from Africa, yeah. and you know when you look at when you look at what's come here from other places. So I I, I would agree with Laura that there's not really. I wouldn't say an indigenous cuisine here. You know, I look at the the bowl of gumbo as sort of a very you know, representative look at, at, at the United States in a lot of ways. If you look at what's in there and where all these ingredients came from, and even the word gumbo comes from the West African word for, uh, for okra. So, so the idea of the melting pot, which I, I don't totally love, I don't want us to melt altogether, but um, I like to look at it more like a pizza. You know, we have a, a one foundation, but a lot of different toppings, so I like that analogy better. So I, I don't think there really is, you know, there's pockets of, of innovation but I wouldn't say there's a real super distinct American cuisine and just sort of like I would say there's not necessarily like a super distinct American. You know, we've made up a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different kinds of food, which is the greatness, I think. I think I'm going to open it up for if anybody feels like they have any questions for our panel. Um, Stephanie will bring the microphone around. Uh, thank you. Uh, George Lang from Tampa. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, international is that uh, McDill Air Force Base, uh, uh, once a year there's an international coalition night there where all the members of the coalition, 45 plus, uh, come together to uh, serve cuisines uh, from their country. And a very interesting uh, opportunity. While my wife and I have traveled much, uh, we've had the opportunity to uh, partake in a lot of different places uh, that uh, likelihood will never be. But uh, I, I think with, with the coalition members here wanting to eat sometimes their home cooking, if you will, looking for places in town, as well as the military who uh, travel, have been around the world and dealing with this, um, uh, learn to love a lot of different foods. So I don't know if you, you believe that's a, maybe an influence in our community different from, from others. Absolutely, if you look at, at the Ballast Point neighborhood in Tampa, kind of very South Tampa, 
there are tons of Middle Eastern restaurants, and they're there to service the people who um, spent time in the Middle East at, 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 our, at McDill. Same with um, German restaurants in this area. Almost any German restaurant you go to, if you just start eavesdropping on the next table, there's former military who were stationed in, in West Germany years ago or, or Germany more recently. But I, I think that's a really good point, is that we have a, a, um, a group of people here who, are, who have been very transient in their lives and have lived other places and want access to that, those cuisines. And if you look at the commissary, they have all the international foods there. And I think that, you know, some of the probably the grocery stores carry things because of that. That's a great point. Hi, my name is Sue Goldwoman. I live in Madison, Wisconsin, usually. Um, I want to uh, finally uh, hear someone, I was happy to hear someone acknowledge immigrants, because, of course, this is a country of immigrants, so so many cuisines have come here from all over. There's no surprise, in a way that there would be so many cuisines here and a melding of different kinds of cuisines just because of who is settled in this country. But that actually wasn't my question. I was happy to hear the reference about organic carrots grown in California or organic carrots from your garden, and also the comment about just because we can get things here from all over doesn't mean we should. So I would like a little discussion, more discussion about that if you would. Thank you. So Laura, um Briefly, just what did you mean by that? Just because we can get anything we want, maybe we shouldn't. I, I think that um, for me, the older I get and the more I think about these things, um, local is the most important thing and organic is a much more secondary thing to me. And it, I, I mean, we all have a different moral compass. Um, I think food that is grown near you um, that travels a shorter distance, is more nutritionally dense, is going to taste better, but it also serves the local community. It, it puts money back into the local community and kind of is, is magnified. And, and, you know, I think that there are a lot of good reasons um, to pursue that or to, to spend your money in, in a local context. I think also in terms of foodborne illness, um, it's there's a lot of reason to understand and be able to track back the provenance of your food. And if it's, you know, made by someone who, whose kids play on your kid's little league team, um, I think that there's, there's a, a, a culture of trust associated with that that's, that's only a good thing. Thanks. Hi, I'm Pat Fling. I live in St. Petersburg now. I'm a transplant. I've lived all over the country. And I think it's not just millennials who have, are bringing diversity to international eating, but it's people coming here to retire because we're more educated maybe than Native Floridians have been in the past. Not, no knock on Native Floridians, but I think people are coming here with a broader perspective, have lived all over, have traveled widely. So when I go out to eat, I see a lot of people who have transplanted here from all over who are more my age necessarily than millennials. But one of the things that I feel is missing in St. Pete is um, a, week, a daily, Farmer's market, I know we have the big farmer's market on Saturdays, but there's really not that many farmer's market kind of places you could go to any day of the week that is available, and I, I miss that having lived in other states. Where did you move from? Um, most recently from Reno, Nevada. Okay, so, so you know, part of, the, part of the issue here is, you know, you're, you've, you've moved to the most densely populated county in the state. Hashtag Florida man, you probably know all about that. But anyway, um, uh, so there's not a lot of farmers around here. You know, there's some down in some down in Bradenton, some out in Hillsborough. So when you start talking about like a daily farmers market, where are we going to get the produce from? You know, now we're starting about talking about trucking it in from from a long way, and then you start getting into that issue of the gasoline you're spending. So we're kind of in a tough place, I think, for a daily 
big kind of farmer's market. You know, I know that area. I'm from Northern California near Sacramento, which is, of course, you know, fantastic agriculture area. Um, so we get kind of, I think, you know, and Emmanuel can speak to that a little more, but yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, tough, it's a tough road, uh, like a daily kind of farmer's market in this county. I All think. right, I'm having an easier time because we don't have farmer's markets every day. You go to the grocery store and I'm having an easier time finding uh, the zucchini, local zucchini, the local strawberries, um, things like that. And we have Collard the upside greens. down growing season. You know, yeah. if you come from other parts of the country, Wisconsin and New Jersey and all these places that people come from to, to move here, you're used to those fantastic things happening in August. Stone fruit, tomatoes, corn, all that kind of stuff. We're, you know, if you can maybe get mangoes in South Florida, we don't, that's not our growing season. So it, it's, it's a little bit getting used to too, I think, for people. Just one or two more questions. Um, Hal Friedman, St. Petersburg. I grew up in Manhattan and lived in San Francisco for many years, so I'm, I'm used to a certain kind of food, and I, I agree with her, it's where you come from. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that you said about stories, I think there's also the accessibility. There's a lot of young couples, millennial couples, that have started restaurants here. Mm -hmm. Lolita's Brick and Mortar, Il Ritorno. Um, I think that there's an accessibility on a human basis, not just the story behind them, but they're people. Mm -hmm. I don't really relate to Outback, yeah. you know, because it's a corporation. It's a different I might, time. Buy, okay, might yeah. buy the stock, but I wouldn't know <laughs> who I'm dealing with. Uh, that's a statement. Question, why don't we have any decent Chinese food here? I think that's a really good question. So there's, there is some decent Chinese food in Tampa, on the Tampa side, but Pinellas County is really has always been super challenged. I mean, ABC is about as good as it gets in, in Pinellas. Um, I, obviously, it must have to do with demographics. Um, I, I'm, I still think there's so much room for a big kind of Hong Kong style, kind of splurge night Chinese in somewhere in St. Pete, you know, especially because we do have access to great fish. You know, like what's better than a, than a whole fish with, you know, like, ginger scallion and you know I mean it's it's such a great cuisine at its highest level so yeah that's always been a mystery to me and, and hope springs eternal I'll keep going to the next new Chinese restaurant like oh darn another one that's so so well I want to thank everybody so much for being here I need to wrap it up because I've got to get the next panel in here and thank you all very much and thank you to our panelists thank you Janet